Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello. Today, I'd like to welcome a special guest to the podcast and the Naropa community, Dongze Jhampal Namgyal. Dongze is a Buddhist teacher, a practitioner, and the lineage holder from his father, Zigar Kontral Rinpoche. I appreciate you speaking with me today, so thank you for coming. A pleasure to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Awesome. It's a privilege to have you. I'm, I'm really excited to speak with you today. So... I was a little curious. You're the lineage holder of your father, who is a Buddhist teacher and a Rinpoche, and he mm-hmm. has like deep roots in the Buddhist tradition. I'm curious, what was that like growing up for you, being immersed into the Buddhist faith in such a way? I feel like most of us don't have such a deep lineage, and you kind of like were grown up in that. And I'm just right. curious, what was that like for you? Well, initially, it didn't occur to me that there was anything you know, different yeah. because I grew up in the community and, you know, it's the community I grew up in. It just seems very natural. Mm-hmm. And maybe later on kind of getting a sense that there's something a little different. Okay. And maybe at that time, like around the age of five or six, I really just wanted to be low key. I've always wanted to be low key and not be too outstanding, just kind of be a regular kid. Yeah. But I think the the crux of it kind of came when I was growing up and getting into adolescence and then in high school. That's when I really saw a big difference. Okay. Particularly in all the subtle things that I didn't realize were Buddhist teachings. It just yeah. was stuff you did. <laughs> yeah, okay. Like contemplative breathing or working with your mind or mm. kind of generating compassion, you know, in different situations when you're frustrated or something like that. Yeah. And seeing the contrast of how I had this kind of asset that maybe some of my classmates didn't have. And uh-huh. then it became a little more clear that, oh, this is something that is valuable to me. And I didn't really have that much of a rebellious phase. My parents were pretty open, so there's not a whole lot to rebel against. Like they let me just run off into the woods. <laughs> I mean, maybe they just realized they couldn't stop me from running off all the time, so they're just cool with it. Okay. So I didn't feel like I was pushing back against much. So in the end, I figured... Now, this is something that is supportive to me, and I yeah. really saw the contrast with my friends in school and decided that this is something I have. Yeah. And so I want to you know, develop that at least. Yeah, that's awesome. So when you were growing up, did you want to become a spiritual practitioner and be a teacher of that? Or did you have, like, I want to be a fireman or something <laughs> right. like that? Like, How did that happen for you, or were you just like, wow, I want to follow my father's footsteps and keep Mm. teaching and do the Dharma? I think as far as what I wanted to do, I wanted to be Bruce Lee, but... (sighs) Me too. What? (laughs) I know. It's like the dream for most of us. Yeah. But somewhere in the back of my head, I knew that that was less likely and (laughs) that there was this kind of community in place, and you know, this is what my, my father did. I didn't quite know what he did. Like as a job, it was just the thing he did, the thing he was. Okay. And yeah. so, you know, he taught and he he embodied and 
mm-hmm. and so on. It didn't really strike me as a career necessarily yeah, until later, and you know, when you start thinking about careers. Yeah, and then I wasn't so sure about it because I wasn't big on public speaking. I didn't like to make a big splash. I was really yeah. more like I just want to kind of be sitting in the back row. <laughs> Yeah, uh, a bit more, and I had to. I was pushed a little bit more towards the front, and okay. you know, adjusting to that, I felt maybe there were some assumptions of my own about what it means to be a spiritual practitioner mm-hmm. and to own up to my advantages or my lineage, or yeah. you know, just the blessing that I had of being connected. Yeah, and so it became more of a, a matter of service for me. Like this is what helps other people. I have mm. this unique opportunity to do this. The Bruce Lee thing is kind of phasing itself out from my my life as a career opportunity. Yeah. Is it though? Are you well, a mental Bruce Lee? <laughs> Energetic Bruce Lee? You just kinda you know, empowering I, people to like take charge and just own it? In some ways it it kept transitioning because I I retained a strong interest in martial arts, like in an ongoing yeah. sense. Okay. But it kept transitioning from uh, the physical aspect of, you know, whoa, to, yeah, yeah. to uh, um, and ah. there's like a, a connection there with like Bruce Lee and his teacher. And, yeah. you know, he had that whole thing, the Tao of Gong Fu and kind mm-hmm. of the spiritual touch in. And as I encountered the world a bit more, you end up seeing so much violence and confrontation. And, you know, even in Bruce Lee's movies, he, yeah. he dies in yeah. some of them. So... As cool as it is, it doesn't seem like an answer or something mm-hmm. I really want to do. Like I want to embody something in that, yeah. which is the discipline or the the openness to the tradition and the the strength of character and and so on, but not necessarily always about it being confrontation. Mm. So it became kind of an emphasis on spiritual kung fu and you know, I have the whole Tibetan Buddhist tradition behind me. And so I started seeing parallels on, you know, strength of character and even Buddhism and martial arts, Buddhism and Shaolin monks. Mm -hmm. And then my interest kind of developed. And now it's more of a a spiritual, even my Kung Fu interests are spiritual now. Yeah. There actually is a huge amount of mindfulness and just body awareness Mm -hmm. in the art of martial arts, Kung Fu, all that stuff. I actually have a black belt in Taekwondo and Hapkido and I studied uh, Xing Yi for about seven years. So like I have a pretty deep practice with the breath (laughs) of martial arts. So, and I grew up wanting to be Bruce Lee as well. So I had that vibe as well, but I never really realized how much you're using your mind and your body, the relationship between the two. And I love how you're using your passion when you were younger and bringing it to your passion as you become Mm -hmm. a person of like interest and well-being. And it's really cool to hear that. Yeah. I had a a predilection towards philosophy and introspection, I guess, in that sense from an early age. Yeah. And when I really got into it, I thought that whatever I do, whether you know I end up being a kung fu teacher or I end up working in an office or working outside or even mm-hmm. just going off grid. I mean, that was a, that was a <laughs> thing in high school. Okay. Everyone was talking about biodiesel and like living in a trailer yeah. or somewhere. No matter what I did, it would be helpful to have some sort of spiritual practice or yeah. way of way of living, mm. so to speak. And it seemed to be a great thing to do, and so I pursued it as yeah. a way to support life and whatever else I did. 
And the more I pursued it, the more I felt like everything I did took on that context. So, you know, whenever I cook now, there's some element of spiritual cooking or spiritual yeah. nourishment. And, yeah. You know, Kung Fu takes on a spiritual element. So, you know, writing takes on a spiritual element. Like everything takes on some sort of introspective, hopefully compassionate or, or I guess insightful emphasis. I don't quite take it at surface value. Like I feel like it has a way to integrate. Okay. Like it's not separate. Nothing's yeah. separate in that way. Like there is a way that everything connects. Yeah. And so mm. it stays alive in that way, no matter what I'm yeah. doing. Spirituality kind of seems like the ingredient you can add to yeah. any endeavor in which you engage in. And so yeah. I like hearing that. And I see other people doing that too. Like yeah. doing their spiritual mindful business or yeah. their uh, mindful bartending or mindful mm-hmm. martial arts or mindful politics or mindful activism. I mean, it. I see other people doing it and it inspires me because I see it's out there. Yeah. It can be in all places. Yeah. Mindfulness is able to be applicable to anything you do. You're washing your dishes. Right. The way you're standing, the way you are relating to gravity, the gravity of heaven, the gravity of earth, because you're being pulled down, you're being pulled up. How do you play within that? You yeah. know, like how is the body made? And that's just doing dishes, like walking your dog. Yeah. Like, how do you think as well? Like your body mechanics, your mind mechanics. Mm-hmm. I love hearing that. What is it? Oriyoki, just uh, in Japan, is mindful eating. Yeah. Just eating has its own spiritual element. Or it can have its own spiritual mm-hmm. element with gratitude, with mindfulness, with appreciation for where everything comes from and how it all comes together. Yeah. Your own sense of craving or disinterest or disgust mm. or equanimity. I mean, I, I've eaten some pretty <laughs> weird things in the name of trying to develop equanimity too. Interesting. Okay. Like just as like also being fun and trying new yeah. foods and cultures, but... Yeah. In the same line, too. Mm-hmm. It's amazing when you start cultivating awareness, how more activated you are and how much more awareness floods into you. You're like, oh, my God, I'm so aware. Like, I can feel and see so much more than I'm used to. And and you almost realize how unaware you were Yeah, in some senses of like, wow, there's like an overwhelming amount of awareness, but then the physical mind gets to choose what it gets to focus on. And then mm-hmm. I guess the meditative mind helps you define what to focus on, what actually resonates and benefits you of the decision of what to focus on and be aware of. Yeah. And it's a choice that we cultivate too. Yeah. You got to cultivate the ability to work with the mind and you know, not just be led on by your habits all the time. Yeah. Awesome. So you have the title Dongsei. What does that actually mean? Like, How did you achieve this title? I feel like a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are not essentially steeped right. in the Buddhist tradition, but they're very interested in the practices. So mm-hmm. I'm just kind of curious. So Dongsei on a, a more superficial level means that I am the son of a Rinpoche, okay. the son of a, a teacher. But in a little more in-depth, it also means a spiritual and Dharma heir. A lineage heir. Ooh, okay. So I wasn't always labeled as Dungse John Paul. Okay. I was just John Paul. But then at a certain point when I decided that I would step into this role in our Sangha community and that I would you know, start training and teaching and learning what it took to carry this lineage forward from my father's instructions, 
then I got that title as well. Okay. So it's like when you stepped into it more, that's mm-hmm. when you were given the title. Yeah, it's a more recent thing. It's I've only had it for the past okay. about six, seven years. Nice. Is there any titles that you are wanting to get to so you can like <laughs> teach further? Or like, right. is there a path in which you're taking in which a title will be presented to you? Well, I don't know if there's anything that I aspire to get. I mean, in some ways, it's just my pleasure to serve the community and yeah. to, you know, be where I can. And, you know, I'm not some tremendous meditator or a teacher, you know, I'm engaged with my community and I certainly do the best that I can, but I'm not necessarily aspiring for anything lofty myself. I just want yeah. to be of benefit and okay. be a positive example in my community. Yeah. And if there is anything on the horizon, it's not something I know yeah. about. Such a great foundation. Just be yeah. a good person and just yeah. have that be available. It's, it's a like relief that. for me too, because yeah. there's someone like His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, yeah. you know, born as the Dalai Lama. And he is like a great teacher, uh-huh. a great spiritual being and with a tremendous lineage behind him. But there's a lot of responsibility behind that too. And he often says that he just wishes he were a simple monk. And yeah. that would have been his preference. I take that to heart that I'm more or less not a monk, but hmm. a simple practitioner in kind of a smaller context. So I'm really happy yeah. to not quite have that level of notoriety. Okay. Yeah. But I definitely can feel like a really good heart, a sense of well-being, like an enjoyable life living. You have things that are being cultivated that seem really nice. It mm. seems as though you speak about your community and your sangha. So it sounds like you have a really good community to be surrounded in. Oh, yeah. For sure. I'm, I'm very lucky that way. Okay. And I think the, the happiness naturally comes about as someone does find a meaningful spiritual practice. Yeah. Regardless of if they have a name or anything like that. I mean, that's the, the point of having a practice is to yeah. find something deep and meaningful and uplifting. Yeah. I love all the talk about practice because that's my <laughs> next question. Okay. Cool. So what does practice mean to you and how do you practice? Mm-hmm pretty vague, but we'll yeah. kind of narrow it down as... <laughs> I see practice as, as twofold. And there's the in meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is kind of a, a traditional description as well. But I think it applies very well to life for me. Okay, There's in meditation where you have maybe a formal practice. Mm. You sit on a cushion, you have a chant or a, a mantra or text or a set of mm-hmm. practices that you follow. Yeah. And then there's off the cushion meditation, post meditation. Okay. And that's when <laughs> I like that. That's when you're just out, you know, hanging with people or mm-hmm. living life and yeah. You're driving and someone cuts you off in traffic and then yeah. you're like about to swear, or, you know, give them the bird or something like that. And you think, "Okay, wait, this is a time for patience." Or this yeah. is a time for sympathy. Mm. not giving in to those tendencies, those uh, habitual tendencies of like exploding in anger or... Yeah. I mean, that is practice. That is active practice when we are just dealing with life and Mm -hmm. being kind, being considerate, being mindful. I mean, that is what practice is most of the time when we're not sitting on a cushion. But I'm also part of a Tibetan Buddhist lineage and there's definitely a set of practices which I do and... 
you know, that progresses as I get better and better at them. Yeah. I mean, I don't ever really leave all of them behind, but that's more the official on the cushion practice. And then there's post meditation life. Yeah. Yeah. And they go together. Mm -hmm. Some things you have to do on the cushion, some things you have to do off the cushion. Yeah. And so practice is really at every opportunity, Uh every opportunity where your mind is involved. Yeah. There's a symbiosis between those two. I really like how you said that and just clarified for us because I feel the same way. There is a practice that you do when you're alone and by yourself. And then there is a practice where you engage with the real world. And Mm -hmm. that's where the challenges sort of come up. And there's a lot of challenges within the mind, within the Mm self-learning as well. But I really love hearing when you're in traffic, when you're standing in line, when you're dealing with other people and, and something's not going your way, there's a moment where the practice comes up and you're like, oh, wait a minute. I don't have to just respond or react to this. I can actually like just take a breath, take a moment. And I've noticed that there's a different way to respond. Mm -hmm. And and then my question is usually like, what is responding? Is it your ego responding or is it your heart responding? Like how many different levels of response do we have? Right. My general thought, I mean, this is maybe overly simplified, is if you respond, you're doing it from intelligence. If you react, you're doing it from your ego. Ah, yeah. Like you choose. Yeah. And the level of choice that you give yourself depends on how much practice you have. You give yourself the ability to choose by not giving into habitual patterns and yeah. you know, ego says, scream, shout, you know, this. Yeah. Like you choose what you want to do from a place of intelligence. Mm-hmm. So any practice which tames down that ego attachment. I mean, it's not like you're going to just going to throw the ego out the door or something like that, but you just tone down the attachment to the ego and just Mm. let it just be and not have to uh, control your life, so to speak, and be kind and considerate and generous towards others. Mm. You have that that. openness. You have that freedom to say, I'm making a choice to do this, not I'm reacting and thus being controlled by my ego. Yeah. There's a different place of ownership that you can own it from. Yeah. So I was actually curious. I really liked hearing that react and respond in the difference of. Mm-hmm. So what does a reaction look like compared to a respond? Mm-hmm. So like reacting from an ego compared to reacting from a response. Mm-hmm. We mentioned aggression. Maybe we'll, we can talk about craving. Okay. So in a situation where someone's handing out food or handing out pieces of chocolate okay and they're like six pieces of chocolate yeah okay yeah i mean a lot of people like chocolate (laughs) uh someone's handing out the chocolate it's like the good chocolate okay you know straight from ecuador dark get that raw cacao yeah Yeah, something like that and there are three pieces but there are four of you Uh uh-huh and then you know first two people get their chocolate and then it's like you and one other person ego says grab it you know just just take it yeah. And that last person is like, okay, well, you know, I just got a deal. That, that's a reaction. Mm-hmm. When you feel that you might lose out, you might not get something, that you're being denied something. Mm-hmm. That's the reaction. Okay. A response is before you reach out and grab it, you notice the other person. You notice the situation. And your hand can still reach out and grab it. You can still do the same thing Yeah, as if... You know, the ego was guiding you, but you have this one moment of clarity to think, do I want to do this? The ego wants to do this. 
but do I really feel like this is something which is important to me? Mm-hmm. Do I need this piece of chocolate? Maybe mm-hmm. I don't need it. I just want it. Yeah. Maybe I want to share it. Maybe I want to totally give it uh-huh. to this other person because they want chocolate. And yeah. if I were in their place, I'd want chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this moment of pause where we get to decide whether or not to go with that tendency, that craving, that mm-hmm. subconscious desire, or to make a decision which might gain us a friend, gain us some generosity, yeah. gain us some good merit, gain us some compassion. And most importantly, maybe to let go of that need to always feed the self. Because it's not like anyone needs chocolate to survive. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to anyone who's listening who, who that <laughs> We're is. sorry out there, chocolate <laughs> yeah. lovers. Uh, sorry, chocolate lovers. But in my experience, no one needs chocolate to survive, but we can often grab onto it as if we do. Yeah. And especially when it doesn't benefit someone else, we can still grab onto it, Yeah. which is a shame. Yeah. But we develop the choice to do that or not. <clears throat> Interesting. So I just randomly thought of this. When it comes to neural pathways and decision-making, because we're talking about this split-second sort of moment where you get to decide to be more mindful and be compassionate towards others in decision-making processes, mm-hmm. or you get to take the ego route and just do what you feel like will best benefit you in the like pleasure realms in the brain, is that taking the same pathway? But then there's like a moment of compassion that is confronted with the idea of doing that. Or right. do you feel like it actually is a different neural network pathway through the brain? Right. Well, I heard a great metaphor for how neural pathways form and we live in Colorado, so it's appropriate. The example is going down a mountain in okay. snow, like going down a snowy mountain, like yeah. skiing or snowboarding, whatever you do, or sledding. Maybe sledding is even better. Okay. So you start at the top, pristine snow, clear mind, mm-hmm. unconditioned, and you go down. Mm-hmm. And then there's this track. Yeah. And next time you go down, it's more likely that you'll fall into the same track that you carved out the first time. Mm-hmm. And so then after going down like 50 times, there's like three or four tracks which are just getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah. And so that's how we form neural pathways and develop habits. Mm-hmm. So in this way, we are somewhat forcing an alternative, like forcing a new path in some yeah. ways. So it is different. Or okay. ideally, when we let go of ego attachment, we actually reset the snow so that we can go in new mm-hmm. directions that we'd never tried before. And if we can reset the ego grasping enough, ego's there, but if we're just not holding on to it so much, we have openness, we have choice yeah. to try new neural pathways without getting bogged down into mm. the same routes that we've always taken before. Ooh, I like that. Because I guess with that idea of the snow falling and mm-hmm. taking the route, I really love it because then we're taking ownership of we actually get to decide what the weather is. Right. So if we want to have some fresh snowfall fall down and then get to choose a different pathway, I feel like that's what meditation does. It gives Mm -hmm. you the controlling factor of allowing the weather to arise to have more decision-making that can benefit you. 
Totally. And okay. I think most people who ski or snowboard would agree that it's so much nicer <laughs> on fresh powder than you know, going down the same yeah. stale, hard-packed snow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you want to keep it fun and fresh, right? <laughs> yeah. Cool. So what would you say some of the difficulties are in personal practice? Maybe you can speak to some kind of hangups that you had <clears throat> while developing your mm-hmm. practice or maybe some people who have shared some, wow, I really find it difficult to do this or that. Mm-hmm. Like, why can I not sit? I know I need to. I know I want to. <laughs> why am I not doing it? Mm-hmm. What do you think is the hangup for some people? Well, we're just not used to taking that kind of time for introspection and, and self-reflection because we're, we're always so busy. They're just busy, busy, busy. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the big hangups is never feeling like we have enough time and I feel that way. Like I can't build any consistency with a practice when I'm always running here or running there. Yeah. And so I have to really make time. Yeah. And carve out something. So that's a challenge. Okay. It's a challenge. But mostly today, I think it's a challenge because of the emphasis that we put on being busy. Like you always got to be busy. I don't know why, but yeah. I mean, you got to stay busy. That's how they say. Yeah, like, I feel I'm that. just keeping busy. I'm staying busy. You know, mm-hmm. is that a good thing? I I don't know if it's always a good like thing. like when you're talking to people, they want to hear how busy you are. Right. They're like, tell me how busy you are. Tell right. me what you've been doing. Like, oh, I've been doing nothing. Wait, no, what? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, it's you're not uh, busy? it doesn't engender a conversation very well, but yeah. it's something that I think a lot of us need, not necessarily to do nothing necessarily, uh-huh. but just to not be busy, to take some time to self reflect and. He says, what did you do this weekend? Oh, I self-reflected. I was like, mm. right, okay. But what else did you do? <laughs> we don't value that necessarily yeah. as a culture, but we also need it. Mm. And maybe we we even crave it okay. to a degree, to have space to think, to have space to process yeah. and you know, take in all of what life has. We only experience about 10% of our senses anyways. Like We mm. experience whatever we experience. We only process about 10% of it. Yeah. And we don't even have time to reconcile that 10%. So yeah, that is a big difficulty. I see it in practice and it comes about what we value mm-hmm. and uh, having the, the benefit of so many teachings and some hindsight, mm-hmm. I see that this is really what I value. And thankfully I have some opportunity to carve out time. And yeah. sometimes I just got to say, nope, sorry, I got to do this. I mean, to whatever degree I can. Uh-huh. Interesting. So I'm, I'm hearing the sense of redefining what busyness means to you mm. and having a positive twist on busyness because a lot of people feel like being busy is what benefits, but it can actually bog you down or kind of burn you out. Right. So what is the relationship to busyness that you have and is it benefiting you or is it actually getting in the way of just being a sustainable person? Mm. I mean, it's, we got to be busy to some degree. We have to take care of business and that's great. But then there are other times when busyness is also about mental engagement and like being entertained Mm. and stuff like that. And we're almost afraid to see what goes on in our own mind. Something's going to jump out of the shadows of our psyche. I didn't know that was there. Where did that come from? Right. Yeah. That can be scary. And that's why we have Netflix, you know, to fill, yeah. the, to fill the gap somewhat. And, you know, Netflix is awesome and entertaining, but 
you know, how much of it does a person need in a day? Uh And, you know, I'm totally guilty of that myself. But when it comes to what's going on in our mind, sometimes we're just afraid to look. And, Mm. you know, if we're afraid to look at something, that sounds a little like thriller, suspense, horror. (laughs) I mean, if we give our mind a chance, we can find all sorts of things, comedy, tragedy, Mm. something way more meaningful than what we'll see on a screen. And it's in our mind. And busyness tends to distract from that. Like we got to fill our mind with something else and not see what naturally pops up. Yeah. Even space. I mean, even if space is in our mind, I mean, that can be a terrifying thing to yeah. deal with in some ways. Yeah. Like what's with all this space? I got to do something. I can't be here. It's, yeah. It's too open. This is something that comes up in meditation. Someone might get nervous because it's just too open, too much yeah. space, too undefined, too vast, too... Huh. You know, stare into the void, something like that. Yeah, interesting. It seems as though the meditation practice and just the mindfulness awareness, Mm -hmm. when you may confront something that you're not used to or you didn't see coming within the mind, then you have the tools to more or less understand it or work with it. But Mm -hmm. when you're just someone who's just cruising through life and then you just stumble upon or mentally trip over something and you're like, you don't know how to deal with it. You're like, oh, crap. (laughs) Run. That's it. Go. And I think that's totally normal as well. No one should be hard on themselves because it's difficult to meditate. I mean, it can be difficult to meditate. And it's been difficult... For me at times, I know a lot of people, like really dedicated meditators, and you know, you reach a point of your mind where you're just like, whoa, what's going on? Mm. Like seeing something totally unexpected, and it can be a little unfamiliar and scary. Yeah. But it's something that we all can do. We just lean into it, lean into the openness, lean into yeah. like, what it is to be open. <laughs> what is it like to just be free? I mean, think of uh, yeah. when you graduated college, for instance. Okay. You've been studying your whole life, uh-huh. filling your time with like acceptance essays or homework mm-hmm. or theses or, or something like that. And then you come out the other end of the, the education curriculum and suddenly there's all this room. It's like, what do I do? <laughs> yeah. And you know, yeah. society says get a job. <laughs> but for a brief moment when we graduate, it's like, what's all this space? Mm-hmm. What's going on here? Yeah. It's a little like that. Interesting. Okay. I felt that. Thank you for sharing. So I want to jump into karma. So what is your understanding of karma and how does karma affect the decision and outplay of our lives? Like how does karma work Mm. within the constructs of being a human? Right. Well, (laughs) I I don't know if we have uh, as much time to cover cover all of it. But as I understand, karma is cause and effect. It's Mm. what our actions lead to. Uh, What actions from our past have informed our present, what actions from our present will inform our future, or what actions from our past have not yet really manifested. Ooh, I like that one. And so you don't know what's coming either Mm because stuff from your past pops up in your future. That's just how it is. And it's not necessarily enigmatic or divine fate or anything like that, Mm -hmm. or destiny. It's just that we don't always see the results of our actions right away. It's not obvious. Like you drop something, it falls, that's obvious. You say something to someone and then it 
kind of matures and influences and spreads over time, and then it will come back to you in a different way. And yeah. that's not something that's easy to predict down the line. Yeah. You can't really like track those mm-hmm. sort of settings. In a more traditional sense, a great book to read on karma is Karma, What It Is and What It Isn't, and Why the Difference is Important. It's by Trala Grimpache. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. from Shambhala Publications. It's really a great book. I think it's helped inform a lot of my understanding of karma, things that I've heard before and things that I've never heard before. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense to me that you know, actions, our actions affect us. They will always come back around to affect us in mm-hmm. some way because we engendered them. We're a part of them. There's a relationship between us and our actions and thus their results. But then there's also this interconnected sense of actions and how we affect other people and how that spreads out and how that in turn spreads out like seven degrees of separation so that we also see that we're not separate necessarily. Like Mm -hmm. we do reap the effect of our own actions because we have that relationship with it, but also that it's far more vast and interconnected than just one linear cause and effect stream. Yeah. I feel like we're just so used to seeing stuff happen in front of our being. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that it's this weird thing where it's like, well, what do you mean if I say something to someone that might not be in a full intention of what I actually want to be is going to affect me three years down the line? Right. You know, like it's hard to understand that, but I call them energetic investments. Right. So when you're engaging with someone and your mind's like, say this, and you're like, I don't know if I yeah. want to say that. And it's like, well, what do you want to invest in? What type of person do you want to show up as? And right. understanding karma can kind of help you do the practice, be mm. the person to say something that is going to resonate with both people and not just react. It's hard to see ourselves in a vast picture, which is why I think studying history is kind of awesome. Huh, interesting. Uh, okay. When it comes to history, we're less likely to read about ourselves in a history book because it takes a while for that to really yeah. come into effect. And there might be teams of researchers, you know, studying a particular event. But I am astonished with how many things in our current era have to do with the World War II. And and World War II is a giant event yeah. in recent history. But it affects like really weird things, mm-hmm. like Fanta Soda. Does anyone know the correlation between World War II and Fanta Soda? I don't. Or how it relates to Coca-Cola, yeah. or how it plays a role in the development or demonization of absinthe, how huh. it uh, has to do with shaving razors. I mean, World War II affected so many small tiny things yeah and world war ii itself started from a handful of people who made decisions Mm -hmm. and those decisions had results and they carried onwards i mean both from maybe who are on the darker side of history and you know those who yeah who were not i mean actions carried forward and they had effects and only through a giant lens of hindsight, can we see how it was interconnected? For instance, Fanta Soda came about because there was a blockade, like no goods mm-hmm. and services were going to Germany. And so they had to develop yeah. their own sodas. Okay. And Fanta comes out of that. Interesting. Shaving razors uh, like Gillette, they were streamlined more for the military who are out fighting and they needed to shave on the go. Yeah. And so you can't have a straight blade with you all the time and shave very carefully while you're in a barracks. 
the development and demonization of, uh, of absinthe, there was this post-World War boom where a bunch of soldiers came home and a lot of them had been drinking absinthe while abroad in North Africa, like the French legions, and, mm -hmm. and they're coming back. And then there's just this surplus of military personnel who are used to drinking a certain thing. Yeah. And then they want that in the cafes and then, you know, mm -hmm. the popularity spreads. Or fast food coming into the American homes when women started going to work more in America and they were not kind of seen as just being at home and they were contributing to the, the war effort and so on. And then, yeah. you know, corporations stepped in to help fill the, the gap where women mm -hmm. weren't making food all the time or in gender roles were kind of changing or evolving or, or however that was. I mean, yeah. so much of, of life today that we do not associate with those events, mm -hmm. have a connection. And so who knows what events in our life, the choices that we make, have some far-reaching effect that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. That's why it's always good to choose the truth and the love and, mm -hmm. and the understanding and to realize whatever you choose does essentially affect other people and mm -hmm. or just yourself. Yeah. So just keep that in mind. Do the good work, you know, <laughs> just show up. <laughs> in my experience... The practice of compassion and being kind to others is an acknowledgement of that connection. One, that yeah. we're all connected. Okay. Uh, and two, that we all have the same basic desire to be happy. Yeah. Like, there's not a whole lot of separation between us to begin with mm -hmm. and that we affect each other and that we're not that different. Yeah. And to have compassion without understanding mm -hmm. is wisdom. Okay. So it's compassion and wisdom right there. Yeah. Awesome. So I just got a couple more questions for you. Yeah. You're on the verge of going into a hundred day retreat. Yes. So I've heard. Yes. I've never done anything like that. That's like a third of the year. That's such a long time. That like, it blows my mind. I'm kind of curious. So what is that like for you beforehand, after? Mm. I'm sure you've done a couple of these before. Mm. What is it like getting out of a hundred day retreat and going mm. back into the wild or the community and right. what is it like being there is it a silent one you know tell mm -hmm. me a little bit about that how does that affect your soul and your mind well i guess to start with i'm always nervous i mean i'm kind of glad for that honestly because it shows mm -hmm. that i'm not taking it lightly okay or at least in my own mind so <laughs> i get a little excited or nervous going in and i mean it's a it is a third of the year and so it's yeah you know i like to at least think that it's a big deal so that I take it seriously and okay. you know, settle in and, and do my practice and don't just waste my time zoning mm -hmm. out, but <laughs> reflecting with purpose, meditating yeah. with purpose. And as a hundred days and the practices can vary depending on what stage I'm of practice that I'm at or what my intention is for that particular retreat, this will be my seventh year okay. coming up. And Every year coming out of retreat, I definitely feel a huge switch because I'm cooking for myself. I eat very simple meals. I don't mm. really talk to that many people. I mean, there are some people around who are also in retreat and we kind of run into each other on okay. the, the mountain where I am. So are you solo at this retreat or sort of solo? I'm, like I'm solo, in my, solo in my cabin and okay. more or less independent. You know, I make my own fires and cook nice. my own meals and stuff like that. But I do run into other retreatants, so okay. I don't. I'm not completely closed off. It's not yeah. totally silent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but it is pretty limited. And so when I come out, I think there's no, no more intense experience than going to Whole Foods. It's like, almost like miles and miles of food and people and talking and bright colors and, you know, sometimes shouting. (laughs) It's like Whole Foods. It's it's almost more than like an international airport. I've I've gone straight to an airport after retreat and it was not like Whole Foods. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So all of a sudden you're just by yourself. You're engaging with your mind on a deep level. You're doing your practice. Mm -hmm. You're doing your dharma. You're being very quaint. And then all of a sudden you need to like go get food. Yeah. It's like, oh boy, screaming kids, people rushing by you. You you probably got to get in a car, which you haven't been in for a while. And just going, going like 45 miles an hour. I feel like I'm flying down the street. Oh, okay. Wow. So seven years of a hundred day retreats. That adds up. Yeah. I'm hoping to get to 10. Then it'll be three years retreat total. Okay. All added up. And some people do go in for three-year retreats. Yeah. Our sangha had a three-year retreat a little ways back. Mm -hmm. I think some people are still doing three-year retreats, but Mm -hmm. I didn't think that I would quite be able to handle a solid three years. And so I thought 10 years of 100 (laughs) days, you know, I think that's doable. I think I can swing that. Yeah, no. That's impressive by any means. Okay, so when you're in the retreat, what type of meditation do you do? Is there a special time? I know there's like Tonglen, there's mindful mm-hmm. meditation, like looking at a flame, the bringing right. yourself back to the center. Like is there mm-hmm. specific types of meditation you sit in? Is it only mm-hmm. one type the whole time? It changes up depending on what phase of my practice I'm in. I mean, my first retreat was like a week. And okay. This is when I was 12 or 13. And for the most part, it was basic shamatha practice and sitting and looking out the window. I mean, it takes place in wonderful, beautiful landscape. And there's this big valley in front of me. And so Mm -hmm. I can kind of look out the the cabin window and see the valley below and develop my concentration and deep breathing. And then once I get to a good kind of solid rhythm, then I start developing equanimity, kind of seeing all beings as equal, yeah. all beings as at least equal in importance. Then kindness, wishing that everyone be happy. Compassion, wishing that mm-hmm. all beings be free from suffering. Yeah. And then a sympathetic joy, like rejoicing in their victories. And then yeah. that's the four immeasurables practice. And yeah. then I move into Tong Len, where you kind of take on the suffering of others in order to give them happiness. Not quite in a martyrdom sense, but just because you feel like there's no difference mm-hmm. between yourself and other people. And it's not even like sacrifice in that way. I mean, when we hear sacrifice, we the ego naturally screams a little bit like, no, not me. Yeah. But when you're not so much engaged with the ego, it does come quite mm. easily. The wanting to just take away some of those pains, take away some of those trials from other people just to to give them a moment of happiness and recycling right and it's a a very powerful practice for a lot of people i mean a lot of people do tonglen and they say how much it transforms their mind and it's it's a wonderful wonderful practice and so that was really the structure of my first retreat and it was just a week but it made a really big impact on me yeah and i'm just in my cabin crying (laughs) you know thinking about the suffering of the world and feeling the compassion. I, mm. you know, I came out feeling very positive and wanting to engage or 
wanting to to be open to other people. Yeah. Shifting your relationship mm-hmm. to how you engage with things and realizing you're not as separate as you think you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I really like it's like composting. Yeah. You know, sometimes you need that shit <laughs> to like create <laughs> the flower, create the fragrance of beauty and mm-hmm. someone's got to do it. Yeah. You know, actually the metaphor for a bodhisattva, someone who is on the path to attain enlightenment in order to benefit all beings yeah. is that of a lotus, which comes up out, out of, of the swamp, yeah. out of the shit yeah. and it blooms and is not tainted or mm. dirtied by the swamp in which yeah. it blooms out of. And so it comes out of that mire. So yeah. it's, it's just like what you said. Yeah. Oh man, the people who want to be and or are bodhisattvas, it's so amazing to me to like want to step into this life to heal others like being a high resonating soul (laughs) to like come back to earth i got this i'm gonna help y'all out yeah Um, but i'm gonna work on me and then i'm gonna show up for all you it's so just (laughs) amazing to me that like people want to come here to help people in that way yeah and i mean that's also what you just did like a little bit of rejoicing rejoicing in how people can benefit each other. That's part of yeah. the, the practice itself, mm. that we can rejoice in all the good things that are happening in the world as if, you know, we share in that. Okay. Like we all share in, in rejoicing over good things. Yeah. And that's, that's a practice too. Yep. Cool. All right. So I really appreciate you speaking with me today. Oh, and yeah. just so our listeners out there can mm-hmm. find you, maybe shout out to where to find you. Do you have a website? Do you have some talks that you can find online or anything like that? Yeah. So our community has a website, okay. mangalashribhuti.org. That's M-A-N-G-A-L-A-S-H-R-I-B-H-U-T-I.org. And okay. there is a, a page there. I also have an Instagram John Paul Norbu 108. That's J A M P A L N O R B U 108. Okay. Uh, on Instagram. And and there is also a podcast that our Sangha hosts called The Link, where we do some open Sunday morning broadcasts every week. Uh, I'm on it cool. generally once a month. And okay. that can be found on the website under mangalashibuti.org backslash the link. Okay. It was such a pleasure speaking with you today. I can just feel pure enjoyment of the path. You just feel so real to me. And I can see the heart and the soul in you. And you just have this like presence of joy. And I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. This has really been a pleasure. Awesome. So I'd like to thank... Dongze Jampal Namgyal for joining me today. He is a Buddhist teacher, a practitioner, and a lineage holder of his father, Sigar Kontrol Rinpoche. So thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you so much. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.